All right. Two friends met on the street one day. One looked downcast, almost on the verge of tears. And his friend asked, what has the world done to you, my old friend? The sad fellow said, let me tell you, three weeks ago, my uncle died, and he left me $40,000. That's a lot of money, the one friend said. But, but you see, two weeks ago, a cousin I never knew died, and he left me $85,000 free and clear. Wow, sounds like you've been very blessed, right? You don't understand, he interrupted. Last week, my great aunt passed away, and I inherited almost a quarter million dollars from her. Now the man's friend was really confused, and he said, well, then why do you look so glum? This week, nothing. I found this story on the internet, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and I, I mean, you know, as I was looking, I wish it had a source. I can't really source that there was an unknown source, but it really highlighted the difficulty of finding contentment. I mean, here this guy is. He's just progressively got more money over the last few weeks that he didn't see coming. But this week, eh, nothing, nothing, right? Warren Wearsby once said, Prosperity has done more damage to believers than has at adversity. I am rich has in, and increased with goods and have needed of nothing, as he quotes from Roman, uh, Revelation 3.17. If this is true, we are in great danger, my friends. Some of us may not think that we are wealthy, but according to this world, we live in the most prosperous nation and at the most prosperous time in the history of the world. Uh, frankly, the, those who are in poverty in this nation live better than most even that were in the upper middle class during biblical times. So how do we find the secret of contentment even in such a wor world as today? Uh, join me as re we read Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at length... Uh, at the, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church and be able to just, just learn about your word, uh, to be able to worship you and lift up the worship this morning. Thank you that, that you, you've allowed us to, to sing to you, God, uh, that you've given us that privilege. A lot of times we think we're bringing something to you when we worship, and God, uh, I know that you do command us to worship you, to learn about you, to have a relationship with you. Uh, to glorify you, God, but, but you command it for our good. It's such a blessing to be able to share in your glory, to, to be able to, 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 to experience you through worship and to, to learn about your word, Lord. So, so God, clear our minds and help us to learn the secret of contentment that you teach us through your word today. We love you, Lord. Amen. So today we're going to discuss three ways you can learn the secret of contentment. And the first is, first point, you can be content through reflective Remembrance. You can be content through reflective remembrance. So verse 10, I'm going to read it again. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul used this word rejoice, and he's used it a lot in this uh, book, as we've talked about. Either joy or rejoice, we see it a lot, but this is the first time that he quantifies it. So how has he rejoiced? He's rejoiced greatly. So he's giving us a, a quantification. And what has made him rejoice so much? It's the renewed concern and love that he has experienced 
from the Philippian church. Uh, as we stated before, he's some 800 miles away from the church of Philippi. He's in Rome, imprisoned, and so they don't really have an opportunity. He wants to let them know, hey, I'm not upset with you all. I know you all haven't had the opportunity to really do a whole lot for me. But, 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 he, but he does know that they have supported him as much as they can. And we see that, that, this, that this support from the Philippian church was even more special to him because of where this church was financially. So if we look in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but, but they, gave, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So as you can see on the map, on this next one, when it mentions Macedonia, he's talking about the church in Philippi up, up uh, if you look right up to the top there. Uh, so, so this is the church that he's talking about, th- this church that he planted. And we see that extreme poverty hit this area, hit this church. Uh, they, they, they weren't rolling in the dough, but yet they were generous. They, they were so generous uh, to them. Uh, these are the same people that sent Epaphroditus, if you remember from chapter 2 as we were studying, uh, the man that came and brought a gift from the church in Philippi, and then he almost died. And so he's the one actually likely carrying this letter back to them. Uh, and so, so it's just, just amazing to see uh, their love for him and his love for them. But what I don't understand, and what I find really interesting uh, uh, at first glance, is why this church is full of joy. So if we look at verse 2, it just doesn't make any sense, right? So I've, I've kind of highlighted some things so that it kind of makes sense. So, so, so what does it say? It says that they overflow, or that they had an abundance of joy. Well, there's a book in there. If you kind of look, there, there, there's two things that don't really go with what we would consider joy. And so it says, it starts off, a severe test of affliction. Well, I mean, that, that doesn't sound really joyous, joyous right? We, we don't know what that affliction was, but we know, obviously, uh, that he goes into some, some detail on the next book in when he says extreme poverty. So they weren't just a little bit poor. They had extreme poverty. But then what happens? So they're, they're afflicted. So maybe it's health. Maybe it's government. Maybe it, we don't know what's afflicting them at the time. Maybe it's persecution because they're believers, which may be the most likely. But so they're being afflicted. And then they're in extreme poverty. That affliction may have been extreme poverty due to government control. We don't really know what, what happened at that point. Uh, you know, different reprimands, different things like that. But they have an abundance of joy, and it leads to what? Overflowed and a wealth of generosity. Wow, like if that doesn't go beyond our logic and just blow our minds, it, at a point where, where they should have been the ones that said, hey, you other churches, help us out. We are in poverty. We are afflicted. We, we, we're, we're being, they are begging Paul to take something from them. Hey, we want to give this to you. We want to give you one of our, our greatest guys, Epaphrodites. We want to send him with you to minister to you. How, how amazing is that? So joy in the midst of suffering and poverty, a wealth of generosity. We can learn a lot from this church in Philippi. Uh, joy does not come from wealth or things. It's being, it comes from being obedient to the Lord, being generous and willing to share, and giving to the work of the Lord and those in need. As we enter this Thanksgiving and Christmas season, this really hits us, and I pray that it helps us to reflect on what true joy is. And, and, and even maybe if we're in poverty, maybe if we're in affliction, whatever that is, true joy doesn't come from our situation or our circumstance. 
we're about to be bombarded by a lot of things, a lot of advertisements, and it's already started. You're going to go to the stores, and there's going to be all these things that promise you happiness and joy, right? If you just upgrade those appliances, you know, you just upgrade that cell phone. If you just do whatever, you know, you'll, then you'll be happy. You get that new toy that you've always wanted. Uh, sometimes we're kids like that, and sometimes we're adults like that. You know, th- like that, 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 that one toy that'll make, you, that'll make you happy. But Paul says the true joy comes from being obedient in the Lord, right? The Philippian church was full of joy, and that joy brought joy also to the heart of Paul as he looks at their generosity and he remembers uh, what they've done and their obedience to the Lord. So Paul rejoices because of reflective remembrance as he looks at the Philippian people. And he's starting to learn the secret of contentment through this reflective uh, remembrance. He had planted this church some 10 10 years ago as we started in Acts chapter 16 when we started this series. Now uh, this is our, I think, 15th week or, yeah, some 14th 14th week in this series. Um, And he's seen their spiritual growth over that decade. He's seen them grow from a baby church, new converts, to now in a severe test of affliction and overwhelming poverty, their, their, uh, their abundance of joy and generosity. He's watched them grow, and that is giving him joy, and he's rejoicing in that. So re- reflective remembrance with a thankful heart is a, is a good way to start your journey to contentment. Next we see that you can be content through earthly experience. You can be content through earthly experience. And let me read verses 11 and 12 again. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation... I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. So Paul has learned uh, contentment from the school of hard knocks. Uh, He's taken quite a few hard knocks himself over the years as you read through the scriptures at this point in his life. We talked last year about how we need to, to hear and we need to receive truth, and then we can learn and practice it. And so it's during this practice that we can truly see godly character coming to fruition, kind of coming out in us. We can know the right thing to do, but still fail to do it, as we see in James 4.17, which will be up here in a second. So, so, whatever, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Right? It takes perseverance and diligence to continue walking, um, even when it's not easy. So, so we see in Philippians uh, 4.11, Paul makes this interesting first statement, not that I am speaking of being in need. So why does he make that? Obviously, he has some needs. He's in prison. He needs to get out, is what he would say, probably. It's like, hey, I need. But what he wants to let the believers in Philippi know, that it's not so much the gift that they've given him. It's not so much sending Epaphroditus that they've given him uh, that he rejoices in, although he, res- re- he respects that, he loves that. But, man, he, he doesn't need anything but the Lord. He wants them to know, hey, you know what, as, as much as, as you all meeting my earthly needs, man, I want to see you grow in the Lord. I, I want to experience the Lord myself. I want to be a part of that. And, and he even kind of nails us home, actually, we'll, we'll see next week in Philippians 4, 17. Not that I, I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So he wants God to be glorified. So when he looks back, reflects, he's, he's just glorifying God because he's seeing God work. And he is rejoicing because he's seeing the heart of the Philippian believers. He knows that what matters more to him is God being glorified than, than, than more so than his needs being met. John MacArthur said this, but Paul knew that the chief end of man is not to have his needs met, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Wow. You know, I, that's so counter-humanism, counter-cultural today, isn't it? You know, the chief end of, of man for most of us in this world, in this culture, is to, to make the most money, to be the most comfortable, 
uh, to, to be the most respected, to be the most popular, to be, you know, that, that's the chief end of many men and women in our culture. But that's not where Paul was. In this second half, we, uh, the last half here in verse 11, we see another really interesting thing if you study the original Greek. We get, we get back to this word learned again, and so he's learned in whatever situation. This assumes that he had a lot of situations, which we're going to discuss again in, in, chapter, or in, in uh, verse 12 as we get to it in here in a second. But what did he learn? He learned to be content. This, this Greek word for content here is where it gets interesting because this Greek word content is actually a pagan term. You're like, wait a second, this is a pagan term in the Bible? It's like, yeah, so Paul takes this, this pagan term for content and he turns it into a Christ-honoring term. And so the Stoics is where this term really kind of came out more so. The Stoics started around 300 B.C. Uh, in Athens, and uh, the school was called the Stoic School. Hey, that's easy to remember, right? And this, this guy named Zeno is who started it, and, and uh, that actually continued going on until the, the second half of the 3rd century A.D., so it lasted o- over 600 years. The, Stoic, the Stoics believed that, that happiness could be attained and that was, that was the best thing you could do. The highest order that you could do was attain happiness. But there was, a, there was a caveat to that happiness. That happiness had to happen without any external circumstance, without any external influence. It had to come uh, apart from any earthly passion, any heaven. Like there, there was nothing else. The ultimate goal was to become completely self-sufficient. So, so you didn't need anybody. Uh, I- if your life was going poor, you could be stoic, right? People use that term. That, that guy's very stoic. It doesn't seem like anything really shakes him up. And we kind of use that in a, in a good term uh, sometimes, right? But this was a bad thing. So it was completely self-sufficient. I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need you. I am enough in myself. Self-sufficiency. But what does Paul take this loaded term? And what does he do? And we'll see in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he twists that term, self-sufficiency, to Christ-sufficiency. How amazing is that? So he uses this to, to move on. And I, as we get to verse 12, we see him expound upon how he learned contentment. So how did Paul learn contentment? He learned it through experience, too. So we, we've had some reflective remembrance. He started learning some contentment there. Now he's learning contentment through his earthly experience. So some people can have negative consequences time and time again. They can be left empty. They keep turning to, to things that fall asleep, uh, uh, offer pleasure and deliverance, alcohol, drugs, the love of money, the love of things, sexual sins, all those things. They're, they're among the worst at making these promises that they will provide joy and happiness but they never deliver. They always leave one the same way, too depressed and hopeless, two things. Yet Paul has learned contentment through his experiences. So what exactly were his earthly experiences that he learned contentment from? And we're going to go through four of them. The last two actually are two and two. So number one, Paul had been brought low. So what does that mean? Paul has been brought low. It means that he spent much of his ministry in poverty. Uh, he didn't have a whole lot. Uh, we know that he was a tent maker, and he, and he tried to use that in order to support his ministry. But as he was ministering so much, and he was being persecuted so much and thrown into prison, obviously he didn't have a whole lot. Uh, he lost a lot of the money that he had made that was probably stolen from governments and, and different people as he ministered to them. And he'd been ministering to these people out of his own finances for the most part. Despite all this, though, he was content. Paul also had abounded. He had certain parts of his ministry, certain parts of, where, where he was in a place of affluence. We know Lydia. Lydia was an affluent lady, and so he had times where, where he, he knew what it was like to have plenty and, and be taken care of, right? 
But then he also had faced hunger and need. Paul knew what it was like to go to, stu- to, to sleep with his stomach growling, to feel those pangs of hunger that just, oh, man, you know, yet, yet all through all those experiences, he learned contentment. And before that, too, we saw that he had faced plenty in abundance. He'd been well-fed. He'd had much. Yet among all those experiences, he, he learned contentment. So all six of these are earthly experiences. Um, the, the, it's, it's not really spiritual here that, that he's mentioning. These are earthly experiences. He, he was either hungry or he was well-fed. He was either poor or he had much. He either had an abundance or he had needs. Well, what about Americans? Americans today, how do we, how do we relate to Paul? Well, we, we have no problem focusing on our physical needs. Uh, in fact, I think most seem to do it about 24-7, and our culture reflects that with television ads. Uh, you look at 24-7, we're, we're, we're being inundated with, you need this or you need that. Let, let me help you scratch that, that itch for that need or that desire of what you want to do. It's so easy to continue wanting more. Like the friend we discussed in the introduction, right? You can inherit more and more and still not be content. It can still not be enough. So if we cannot learn the secret of contentment through personal wealth, food, a dream home, you know, whatever it is, a luxury car, how can we learn the secret of contentment? We've seen that from reflective remembrance and from earthly experience, we can begin learning the secret of contentment. Yet our final and most important point stresses the key to learning contentment. So join me here. This is uh, point three. You can be content through the Savior's strengthening through the Savior's strengthening. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wow, what a powerful verse there. Uh, Sometimes I misuse verse, we'll talk about that later, but a very powerful verse. Actually, some translations just get rid of the the whole him and they just go straight to Christ. They, they, They go ahead and put Christ out in there. As we discussed in our second point, Paul took this word translated as content, which was used for self-sufficiency at a time, at the time, and then turned it heavenward. He, he could be content not because he was self-sufficient. Paul, Paul was not self-sufficient. Uh, he, he, he knew that, that he was not good. And if you look at him, he'll actually call himself the worst of sinners as he goes through. Christ, but, but Christ was enough. And this Christ-sufficiency that he was preaching fueled his labor for the Lord. Paul did some awesome things to advance the gospel. And if we look at, at Acts, the book of Acts, we see it just throughout the book of Acts. And chapter 14, verse 19 through 20, I think highlights this the best if we get there. All right. I think we, we're, we're, back, we're back in business there. All right. So, so Acts 14, 19 through 20. But it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But, the, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he, and he, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So here Paul is. He's actually preaching the gospel in Lystra, if we look right before this to look at the context. And he had just finished uh, being in Iconium, uh, preaching the gospel. And they found out there was a plot to take his life. Uh, they, they were going to go ahead. They were either going imprison, to imprison him. They were going to do something to him. They, they, were, they were going to hurt him. And so they hear about it, and so they take off, and they head to Lystra to preach the gospel. But after arriving there, man, it looks like this is going to be a great experience. That God is opening the door in Lystra, and we're going to see soul after soul after soul saved. Because what happens? Man, as soon as they arrive, starts off with a bang. Paul he- heals, heals a crippled man. 
and all these people start worshiping them instead of worshiping God. Actually, like it's they, they go, they, they they think that they're Zeus and Hermes, uh, and and they're just going crazy, and they're like, hey man, these guys are awesome, you know this. And they just put them up on this pedestal, and so they they they're rock stars, and they have to they tear their clothes, and they're like, hey, we're only men. It is God that you're to worship, and and they still are having a hard time restraining people. Yet they go from being the rock stars of the area to being the stars that are getting rocked. Uh, so before too long, these rock stars, th- these, these Greek gods, as the people are calling them, all of a sudden go from being the heroes to zero really, really, really quick. So some Jews from Iconium, and they meet up with some people from Antioch, some Jews from Antioch, and they come and they get this crowd who went from worshiping the ground these guys were walking on to wanting to kill them and saying, hey, these guys are actually horrible. And how quickly can a crowd go from hero to zero? I mean, you, you see it in the media all the time, but we see it in real time here even then. It's not a new thing that we see in our culture that this guy can be on, on, in, on the media exalted as the next thing since sliced bread, and the next day he's trash. You know, it's like a, we, we see it go so quick. And all of a sudden, these people who were worshiping them stone them, and or stone Paul, uh, I don't know how Barnabas got out of being stoned, but I guess, I guess they, they went after Paul because uh, he was Zeus, I guess, right? So he, he was the man. Uh, so they stone Paul, and they leave him for dead. They drag him out of the city. They're like, hey, this guy, he's done. You know, so they walk off. But what happens? He gets back up, and it says he goes right back into the city. Wow. Like, that, that is the epitome of doing all things through the, through the strength of Christ. Uh, man, hopefully we never have an experience like Paul did. I hope we're not stoned and left for dead. Uh, you know, but, but each of us are going to struggle in this life, right? We're going to have times where we're mistreated. We're going to experience hunger, thirst, fatigue, and, and likely even times of depressive thoughts. So what do we do during those times when we're struggling? We're to turn to Christ for strength. You see, Paul was, was very excited and blessed to get the gifts from the Philippian church. He was blessed, uh, and he rejoiced in the fact that they sent Epaphroditus, who, who ministered and served with him. However, he wanted to make completely clear in this scripture as he's writing to them, this letter that he's writing to them, that his contentment is far beyond his reflective remembrance and his earthly experience. His ultimate contentment was based on his Savior and not his situation. Friends, in order for us to be content, we must be like Paul here and read along with me. Our contentment must, be, must, must always be based on our Savior and not our situation. I'm going to have us repeat that. Our contentment must always be based on our Savior and not our situation. So situations can change like the wind. You know, one day you can be given a complete bill of health by your doctor, and within a few weeks you can be diagnosed with terminal cancer. You know, one day you can look at your 401K, you can look at your investments, and they can be great, and you're ready to retire. And then you retire, and three days later the stock market crashes, and you realize, oh, wow. You know, one day your kids can be healthy, and the next day you can get tragic news. You know, there, there, there's so many things. Our situations can change, but our contentment must never rely on our situations on this side of eternity, our earthly situations. True godly contentment comes from our Savior, so that no matter what situation we are in, we know that we have a Savior who died on the cross, who took the penalty for us, that, who died three days later, rose from the dead, and took the hell that we deserved, took, took the punishment, uh, what, what he went through, hell on earth as he went through here as he was beaten and bruised and mocked and hung on that cross, all the punishment that we deserved, and even worse, the, the wrath of God that was poured out upon him on that cross as he hung. 
but we have the hope of the resurrection because three days later he rose from the dead, my friends, right? How amazing is that? And we have eternal life with him in heaven. When we truly grasp the gospel, the blessed hope of eternal life, then, then we can be content. So even when our circumstances on earth aren't necessarily the way we'd like them, uh, may, maybe our relationships aren't exactly where we'd like to see them. You know, maybe our job's not exactly like we'd like to see it. Maybe, maybe our family's not exactly like we'd like to see it. Whatever it is, we can be content. And why can we be content? Because we're citizens of heaven. We're not going to be citizens of heaven. We are already, as we talked about before, if we are believers, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are given uh, our, our quote-unquote social security, eternal security card, as we talked about last week, right? How, how amazing is that? If we've truly repented of our sins, if we've truly turned to the Lord, if we've truly become a, a genuine believer. And I pray that we never cheapen verse 13 here. So many people try to take this verse and apply it to what they want to do. So I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Okay, does that mean whatever I want to do, he is going to strengthen me to do it? Well, that's not what he's saying here. Paul's saying that I can go through any circumstance to glorify God. I can exalt Christ in any and every circumstance, no matter how bad it is, because of the strength that he gives me. He will equip me and he will strengthen me to do what he wants me to do, not just what I want to do. And in our world, a lot of times we want to take our plans and rub the genie lamp of God and say, okay, please come and bless what I'm doing already. Uh, this is the way I'm going to go. This is the way I want to go. This, you know, this is the way I'm going to go. God, give me strength to go the way I want to go. That's not how it works, my friends. He promises that he will strengthen us, that he will equip us for what he has called for us to do. We need to seek him, not seek our own. And we can truly be content and learn the secret of contentment when we truly seek him and obey him and walk in his will. So we come to a close I pray that you spend some time looking at your own life and, and kind of judging yourself a little bit. Am I a person who is content in my life? Am I content no matter what my situation is? Or does my contentment, does it depend on my situation? Does it depend on how good things are going, how well my checkbook looks, uh, how, how nice my kids are being, uh, whatever it is, how, how clean my house is? Is, is, is there something that's external that affects whether we're content or not? And I pray that we repent if there is something that, that, that really keeps us from being contentment or from, from, from learning that secret of contentment. Is it from the things of this world or is it from the Savior? Do you, seek to do you seek to find contentment in your situation or your Savior? I pray that each of us here has placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have not, I would love to talk further about that after the service. Just come and talk to me. I'd love to open that up. But I pray that those of us who have, that, that, we, that we march forward together, learning the secret of contentment through Christ, right? We start with reflective remembrance, earthly experience, but in most of all, through the Savior strengthening. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you are God who loves us. Um, I thank you that you are God who has given us salvation through your name and your name alone. Lord God, I pray that each one of us as we enter this Thanksgiving season and then followed by Christmas, that we spend time just reflectively remembering what you have done on the cross, uh, remembering the experiences we have with other believers here as they sharpen us and help us to grow, and that we are strengthened by you, Lord. I pray that our ultimate content, contentment always falls on you and not our situations, that we're able to look beyond our struggles and, and look beyond our wants, our desires, and look to you as our number one desire, Lord. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you. It's in your awesome name we pray.
Amen. Y'all have a blessed week.